Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. I wanted to pop in at the top here with a quick note. One of the things that comes up in my conversation today with Greg about the spiritual but not religious is that for a lot of those people, the number one concern having left a religion or just not being involved in a religious community is where to find community. Religion is often a one-stop shop for all kinds of social connection and just all, all the things we think of when we think of in-person, uh, lived-in community. And that's a real problem. If you are no longer getting those needs met in a community like that, I wanted to let you know, upcoming, we've got a Q&A episode. This is, I believe, actually next week's episode where Kristen Tideman, who does media and marketing stuff for us, is actually kind of asking me some listener questions. And the big one that we tackle at the most length is a question about where to find in-person community after being exiled from a religious community. So if that is kind of piquing your interest either right now or as you listen to my conversation through this episode with Greg, I would strongly encourage you to check out that episode next week as well. Okay, going to get into uh, these various religions and how they interact with science now with Greg Kutsona. Greg is always... Uh, a joy and a pleasure to have on. He's a great guest. This is, I think, his third time here now. So hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Greg Kutsona, third time. You have permission, guest. There, that's a small, that's a small club, three and up. I am really glad to be in that club. Uh, your first two appearances were Hell and Universalism in Global Context, number 84, and Church is Good for You, 119. Uh, but both of those were fantastic and and got a lot of really good feedback. I know that people really love listening to you as a guest. So thanks for writing another cool book and being back to talk about it with me. Well, uh, thanks for, for having me on your show. And uh, I, I really enjoyed listening to you. Um, thanks for inviting me back. So this is the second time that you've come on to talk about a topic in the context of religions, not just Christianity. I thought we might start there 
there can be a kind of a common anxiety or worry from Christians about engaging with other faiths. I imagine it goes both ways from other faiths as well, such that like, maybe I'm going to be like impurified or sullied or on the extreme end, like maybe actually the devil is in charge of these other religions. And so I shouldn't actually be learning anything from them. Like perhaps I should be sort of in God's army fighting against them. That's the extreme version, but there's just kind of a like, I don't know. Do I need to do that? Like, I, I'm just wondering, I know I've felt that many times. Can you kind of speak to that common anxiety? And did you have it? I think that is a common anxiety. I think you're really naming it. Like if we talk about the other options that are out there, will people start taking those other options? And I think there's a legitimate concern actually there. I mean, one of the reasons that I think more and more people are becoming nuns, those who are not religiously affiliating, is that they just see so many more options for spirituality and religion, you know, through the internet on their smartphone and that sort of thing. I think for me uh, as a Christian, and as many people, for, for many people who are Christians, just realizing we are in this world that is pluralistic uh, and that has lots of uh, religious inputs uh, and uh, voices means that we have to be conversant with it. So I would look at this this multi-religious approach as part of loving our neighbor. You know, I mean, I think it's in that way a direct response to what Jesus very clearly commands us to do. Studying other religions has helped me to learn from other religions. I mean, there's there's wisdom to be found in them for sure. And at the same time, it's also helped me to see some of the uniqueness, uh, unique elements of my faith uh, in Christ. So I, I suppose it's overall a win, you know, in that sense. It's interesting that you talk about pluralism as a reality. I've been thinking a lot about this show and just kind of my public facing work on the whole and who it's for and who it's not for. And really it it kind of hinges, I think, on something like that. So I have a kind of fundamental assumption. Maybe you maybe you'd call it a value. I certainly think it was it was inculcated by my parents growing up. Evangelical environments that were more or less conservative, sort of depending on what adult was in the room at the time. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Like yeah. so I never yeah. went to a fundamentalist school, but there were fundamentalists at the school. And sometimes they were my teachers, you know. And I remember being able to figure out like pretty early, probably by junior high or whatever, that, oh, the way that my family approaches this stuff is to be honest about what is in the world, right? Like I, I, like for instance, a lot of my friends were sheltered. That was the word we used then. They sort of were kept from the world and some sheltering is obviously reasonable. You don't show Halloween, the the film to a a six-year-old, you know, like there are developmentally appropriate ages for certain exposures, right? That's good parenting. But it was beyond that. It was like, well, they just sort of don't know what secular kids their age do or know about. And I didn't have that. Like, it was like, no, we're, we're Christians, but, you know, we're in the actual world and we, we take the world as it is. And I think that that's kept up as a value of mine for this show, which includes really difficult questions about other religions, science, miracles, and, you know, these kind of, kind of weird claims within our tradition. And, and how do we think of them in light of, you know, what is it? Uh, 500, 600 years of the scientific method plus thousands of years of philosophy. So I don't know. I don't know if you want to pick up on anything there. I think one thing that is significant for me as biography is I didn't become a Christian until I was 18. And so, you know, I grew up in a family that, well, it wasn't necessarily highly engaged in religion, but it was highly engaged in other perspectives. So that meant that when I became a Christian, I needed to know how to how to respond uh, to, you know, in this case, more atheism, more secularism. The other thing about this book, you know, Science and Religions in America is I wrote it for my students uh, as a as a lecturer. You know, they they kept asking when I was teaching science and religion, can you give us a, an approach that's multi-religious? So they were also asking uh, uh, for it. You know, I mean, that's another yeah. part of it, like just in my life right now as a as a lecturer in a, in a university, that was really important. And then, Dan, I think you and I share something, I believe, just knowing you, and you're going to help me on this in the big five. Is it openness to curiosity? Openness to experience. Yeah. Experience, yeah. yeah. 
I think we're just naturally wired to be open to experience. And oh, it yeah. would seem weird, <laughs> weird to, yeah. It would seem weird to me not to know about other philosophies, religions, spiritualities. I, I am a pastor, as you know, and I'm ordained and all that. But I have had more trouble being in solely Christian environments. Like that's a little weird to me. Like anything that's just Christianity is not just one perspective, but that yeah. is when it becomes one perspective, that makes me feel very odd. So I just am naturally interested and curious about how other people see the world. And that means that I'll sometimes change, but it also means sometimes I'll, you know, nuance what I already believed in, I hope, a more exciting and more sustainable way. So those of us who were raised evangelical or other sort of conservative types of Christianity, most of us, if you bring up science and religion, our first thought, or at the very least, our first experience with that question was conflict. Mm-hmm. How big it is or what it was might have changed in experience to experience, but like it was it was conflicting. And in America, you know, you well know, and, and listeners probably know by now, sort of that can be traced specifically to the Scopes Monkey Trial and the fundamentalist controversies of the early 20th century. And through that, eventually we get all the stuff that ends up inflecting the Jesus movement, which then turns into the evangelical movement. And so that's the sort of historical backdrop there. But I'm wondering, since you were raised sort of secular and pluralist from the beginning, did you ever have that conflict between science and Christianity? Or was that something that was essentially alien to you from an autobiographical perspective? I would say generally not. The, the amount of contact I had before I turned 18, which was when I became a Christian, when I mentioned science and religion to my Chico State students, so these are, it's a secular college in California where I teach. I think I read a million words of student essays a year about topics like this. So it's a, yeah. I'm just saying that's a large sample size. A lot of uh, the first thing that people talk about is this conflict between especially evolution and creation. You know, that's the thing that they identify and they identify it whether they have grown up in the church or whether they have not grown up the church. So that's certainly, I think, something that's in the air. So the book is called Science and Religions in America. And we'll have a link, of course, to that in the notes. But in the let's talk, let's start with Christianity. And then I want to spend sort of the bulk of our time outside of Christianity, because that's interesting uh, and unique here to, to the stuff I normally get to talk with people about. But you talk about the the link between uh, science and Christianity or the conflict therein or whatever. You describe it as frequently misunderstood. What do you mean by that? Who's misunderstanding what in that relationship? Well, I think uh, for one thing, it's often put into a monolithic perspective, you know, like here's Christianity, here's science. And I mean, one of those monoliths is white evangelicalism, which I think your listeners have heard about on your show from time to time. You know, I think it's I think white evangelicals are something like 17 percent of our population in the U.S. And and therefore, you know, somewhere around one fifth of Christians, one fourth, you know, mm-hmm. of Christians. Right. So it's like somehow that becomes all of how people respond to uh, whatever issue in Christianity. So I think that's the first point is that, you know, generally when people hear religion and science, they hear Christianity science, they hear conservative Christianity and evolution, they hear conflict, right? So, yeah. so again, I wouldn't want to be monolithic, but the, that's where the that's where the misunderstanding comes, I think, is to say we can put this into one category, uh, and the category is conflict, and it's just not that simple. So that's the, that's the first part. The other thing I would say is I think there's just a lot of different ways that Christianity engages with science, and one example on that is uh, what Elaine Howard Eklund has discovered is. A, that Christians are really supportive of science, including evangelicals. They they really love science. The majority of Christians say, I love, uh, I, I mean, really want to learn from science. And that Christians overrepresent their interest in um, things like medical sciences, right? Because, yeah. and she hypothesizes that that's because of the tradition of healing in the Christian church. Hmm. So that's another part. I mean, it, we can say in some ways Christianity is more represented in certain forms of engagement with science than perhaps the broader population, or at least they're very engaged with it. So that's why I think the, the, that's where the misunderstanding comes in is, is to take one aspect or one, one aspect of Christianity or one aspect of science and say, that is the relationship between Christianity and science. So it, it, we can talk about 
Christianity itself as a monolith or as like Andrew Schwartz likes to say Christianities mm-hmm. that like yeah. there, re- there isn't one Christianity because to, at, at the border between Christianity and another faith, maybe a syncretistic faith or a secularism or whatever, you know, it, the distinctions start to blur and it's not obvious sort of where to draw that boundary even. And so maybe we could think about like Catholicism or the Orthodox or something like, do you have a kind of a cliff note sense of how the, like Catholics are almost as many Americans as evangelicals or I don't know, it's, it's something it's around that number. Reasonably close. Yeah. Yeah. I think evangelicals are the largest sort of subgroup of, of Christians in the States. But like you said, that's still only 17% of the population. And, you know, we got a lot of Catholics yeah. Broadly speaking, what's the Catholic approach to the sciences? What comes up immediately with the uh, religion science world is Galileo, right? Catholic Church against Galileo, looking through his telescope and speaking about the revolution of uh, the planets around the sun, right? So there's immediately this concept of conflict. At the same time, the Catholics have had their own ideas, right? I mean, they're very influenced by Thomas Aquinas and this idea of you know, what can be known through natural revelation and through uh, special revelation or through nature and grace. And so there's a, that gives them a really easy way. Uh, I don't mean easy in a negative sense, but it's a, it's a framework they can use to slice the pie a little bit differently, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And in that they, they want to say, well, God creates the soul. Like to them, that's, there's a creationism there of their own sort. Another Catholic student or ex-Catholic said to me, my parochial school said that I asked too many questions and they literally had her leave the school. They're like, you're asking too many questions. So I, it's yeah. varied also. Yeah. Again, the broad strokes would be Catholic church, I think has been uh, largely positive uh, about mainstream science, especially in the 20th century. You mentioned general and special revelation. And that's a tool that Catholic thinkers have for sort of separating these things out. Like anything we learn through science is general revelation, but then we've got this special revelation both through scripture. And I would imagine for Catholics through, you know, the Holy Spirit's guiding of the church and its pronouncements, right? Which then are are binding for, for Catholics or whatever. What is that called? The, the magisterium? Yes. The magisterium. There we go. Uh, so, and this is something that I need to think about more, but I'll just, I'll just hold it as a, let's just say that this is my view. And I would be curious to hear you kind of riff on this in this context. So I think that I don't believe in special revelation that whatever God, the divine, whatever is revealing to us, it's more a function of kind of where we are situated and our openness to it. And to the extent that we are situated near enough to something that we could in theory learn it. And if we are open to it, then God will teach it to us. But the way that that happens is through natural means. I have not thought through all the implications of this view. So I, you know, I could change my mind about it, but you know, that the way that that works out for things like scripture or even people who come, who were to come up against the Jesus of Nazareth in the flesh, you know, it's like, yeah, naturally, if you were open to the, the life and teachings and experience of Jesus, then you're going to learn what you need to, to learn. And we don't need this sort of, extra special kind of stuff. And I don't know exactly why I've come to that view, but I certainly feel like I have. So if someone were in that perspective and it's all general revelation, I don't know, what are the consequences of that versus special, anything, anything you want to say about that distinction? I'm I'm curious. Well, just to say as a, as a category, I love that two books analogy that often is used in BioLogos leans on this a lot. I use it in, in different things I've written that there's the book of nature and the book of scripture, and they have the same author and the, they won't contradict one another. In fact, Galileo hmm. uses really effectively in his famous letter to Duchess Christina, where he said, you know, if we see science and scripture having a conflict, it's because we're not interpreting scripture properly. And 
There are very few people today that would interpret Psalm 19 when it says the sun makes its circuit around the earth. Right. That would say, therefore, the sun circles the earth. But that was the way scripture was interpreted in the 1630s, right? I think Catholics are more constrained uh, by what comes through the voice of, of the Pope in you know, about when surrounded with the, the cardinals and so on and the magisterium. And that helps, I think, channel what we would call special revelation. Right. As opposed to like, if I look to my left, which is north, and I look far enough, I can see Bethel, you know, the famous charismatic church, right? And yeah, there's a Redding, lot yeah. of special revelation that's being proclaimed up there, up at Bethel Church in Reading. And and that's the, the idea that, well, actually... That's even more interesting than scripture in some ways. You know what I mean? I, I don't want to be dismissive, but like whatever I hear, if I have a word for you right now, Dan, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell it to you because that's what God is speaking right now. And of course, the Catholic Church has had some of that in its charismatic revival um, where that special revelation happens. For my part, as a Christian theologian, I like that two books approach. Like these are two books that are going to come together and we're going to see them in uh, consonance at some level because there's the same author. The way that I conceive it, and we don't have to get into an argument about general versus special revelation here, but just just to clarify briefly. Yeah. It, it's like the person paying attention in the right way would write the book of Isaiah or mm. would write a Psalm or mm. would write, you know, like a, a close enough approximation of the life and teachings of Jesus. Yeah. That is sufficient to the task kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Some of it is semantics a little bit, but what I was going to pick up on was actually the the Catholic thing, which sort of, you know, the the Pope surrounded by the archbishops or whatever cardinals and, and over time, like that actually kind of resembles the scientific process insofar mm-hmm. as it is, it's less open to revision than si- science is sort of Maybe, maybe in my view, science is taking the best parts of that and kind of leaning into them when science is at its best. It can, of course, become, yeah. uh, you know, in practice, ideologically motivated and it can sort of lose its way here and there for a time. But like, you know, we're going to get together and sort of do our best on this. And there's some consensus involved and there's some sort of checking of biases by having different voices. And it is, it is a little bit, the councils are a little bit like a peer review process. That might be a little bit, some people might think that's a very rosy picture of them, but there certainly are some similar dynamics going on to like an academic conference uh, with a bunch of experts on a topic saying, what's the, what's the state of our knowledge on this issue right now. I think that's fascinating. And I, I'll just add to it. I think there, there I, mean, I think there were those people in the early 20th century. I think it's Edward Loisy was the, Loisy was the theologian from the Catholic church. who's like, that's what makes Catholic Catholicism better. I would think he even said, you know, in a broad sense, better than Protestantism is we have this ability to revise and refine through the voice of God in our leaders, you know, and, yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. I, I'll put in one other plug. I think I put this in the book. I believe I do about the Catholic Church and the scientific method. The whole devil's advocate approach is like yeah. peer review. Yeah, you know. So in other words, if if your if your listeners don't know it offhand, when somebody was to become a saint to become canonized, there'd be the you know the presentation officially among the Catholic leaders. Uh, bishops, et cetera, about whether that should happen. And then there was this person, I think it was just one person who was the devil's advocate, literally. He was like, here's all the reasons this person shouldn't become a saint. And that I think is early peer review. You know what I mean? Totally. Uh, it's like, we've got the people who are going to argue against this perspective and see if it gets sustained. And as a process, I mean, Goodness gracious, wouldn't I love to see that more in the churches I've been a part of, you know, instead of groupthink, to have somebody just to say, here's the contradiction, uh, or sorry, the, the counter arguments to what you're presenting. So, but I would also say that one of the things I learned when I was studying uh, at the Graduate Theological Union, when I was first really getting more deep into science and theology 25-ish years ago, was Bob Russell talking about, uh, Robert John Russell, about a Schleiermacher's approach was that, you know, every miracle is really just seeing a natural event from the perspective of faith. And, um, mm. and that, 
that's a lot about this special general distinction. Yeah, those are the waters that I am most comfortable in. And I recognize that they have their own problems, but that's just where I find myself. But I, I'm actually saying it's a great tradition. I mean, yeah. the Schleiermacherian tradition, though I'm not ultimately part of that entirely, there's a there's a real solid basis for that, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And the reverse, I think, is what a lot of people fear in science and religion discussions, which is, does science allow me to see things as God's work? You know what I mean? That hmm. That's what I hear from a lot of Christians and Muslim scholars is like, you know, the naturalistic perspective and the methods of science is naturalistic. Don't tell me I can't see a miracle, you know, even though you may have a naturalistic explanation for this. Don't tell me that when, you know, somebody has a, a healing physically that God wasn't at work. Let's let's right. leave. Even though you could describe, well, I don't yeah. know, self regenerate. The platelets did whatever the hell. Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think that I think there's there's a flip side of this, which is Christians say don't don't flatten out and make it just you know natural processes. Like in the what we would call the natural world is this revelation of God. Okay, so you're you're bringing me back in, you're reeling me back in, and I can't help it. So two thoughts <laughs> there. Number one is like what I think people really mean when they talk about miracles. Like one way you can slice it is sort of. I'm saying when people use the terminology in everyday language, what they mean is this was extremely unlikely to have happened and it happened. Mm -hmm. And therefore it's a miracle mm -hmm. because they, they don't normally mean like this never happens. You know, the doctors can't believe that the cancer was all gone, which happens sometimes in, in this situation, but it's not common. Yeah. The problem there is like, okay, at what percentage point, does it become a miracle if it can happen and does sometimes happen one time in a thousand, whatever. So every one out of a thousand, we should then use that as proof that miracles happen, right? So I get into problems there. I've never seen someone's entire limb grow back miraculously, right? That kind of stuff does not seem to happen. And really nobody has any experience of it. The other thought, and and it's connected, especially to the sort of, can I see this as God's work? Can I see this as miraculous? Whatever. Uh, Greg, let me ask you a rhetorical question. What would it take to create a fucking universe <laughs> and all the consequent beauty and, you know, everything that comes with creating a universe in which beings evolve to think and feel and communicate and assuming God's real communicate back with God, have relational closeness with the divine, like framed that way. It's all God and it's incredible. And the mind totally halts and boggles at considering any serious alternative, even 5% explanation of what it would take to put us all here. And so that's an, another angle in, of this thing where like I'm full, I'm absolutely chock full of awe and wonder, even though I don't think that God sort of like gooses the gears here and there in special moments. Right. But it doesn't diminish my awe and wonder. Yeah. Anyway, thoughts on any of that? Um, I mean, I, I would just say I, I get it. I mean, I think that's, uh, and I think that's actually, a spiritually developed way of looking at the world, like all this stuff around Why, us. Why, thank you. I've been <laughs> waiting for somebody to say as much. <laughs> well, I almost didn't say it because it sounded kind of patronizing. I didn't mean it in a patronizing way, but I, I affirm it. It's a very affirming way. Yeah. Like that's where I hope we all get, you know, uh, as we, as we see the world becoming more explicable, we say, well, there's still this mystery to it, but Dan, I, you know, there's enough analytic. There's a lot of analytic in me. I shouldn't, I shouldn't yeah. be honest. Like, yeah, where is that percentage when somebody says, uh, oh, this this sunset today was miraculous, you know? And it's like, well, technically speaking, that's not a miracle, yeah. you know? Uh, but I mean, it was beautiful. And it, it was did, really beautiful. It did speak to you. And if God is responsible, not just in part, probably in full for the sunset, in terms of the starting conditions of the universe or whatever, I yeah. guess uh, we are responsible in part because of if there was smog involved, that often makes it more beautiful. <laughs> right. That nice right. diffraction okay. of, of light. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you yeah. know, we are, we participate even in the beauty of some sunsets because we affect the weather, but like 
yeah, like that's still like you can still attribute glory to God for that. And small bone I'll pick with some of the cognitive science of religion folks, including my good friend, Myron Penner, who want to sort of explain the beautiful sunset thing in terms of like agency attribution that we, that we naturally evolve or whatever. I'm like, fine. But like, we're here. We have eyes to see a sunset. It's fucking beautiful. It didn't need to be that way as far as we know. So I'm still going to attribute that to God. Like that. I don't have a logical problem with that regardless of where I evolutionarily developed the ability to attribute it to some other agent. Fine. That's cool. That came about through natural processes, but God as artist or whatever. uh, Yeah, dude, like the fact that beauty exists doesn't seem like that was a necessary condition. (laughs) And and I I don't know how you could possibly argue it would be. That's beyond our pay grade. Right. Well, and I, I, I've spent a lot of time, I think it's now 15 years in the beauty as a nexus of science and religion. I like that in art, you know, and, Actually, it goes back to a thing that Tom Ward uh, put together called the Venice School on Science and Religion. And this was the paper I wrote for that. But, you know, I think beauty and the desire for beauty is more deep than the desire for for propagation, you know, procreation, passing on genes. Like, I think evolutionary thought always wants to make that second why we do things, right? We want to pass on our genes. But I think that beauty is actually as deep. And that that's where I had to come to, like, and in, in seeing where beauty fits. And, and so... You know, that's where I think miracle comes in, in terms of common usage often is God is present here. I think that's what people are trying to say. God is present here. And sometimes that's more available when you don't know the natural causation, right? Um, but I think when we, even when we do, we can say God is present through the natural causation of light mm-hmm. refraction and smog and particulates yeah. or whatever there's in there. Yeah. And I would say what, what I think the Catholics do really well through Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle is to say there's these different forms of causation and we can talk about the efficient cause, which I'm just going to call the natural cause to yeah. flatten this out. You know, we can say, this is why this happened, this phenomenon, but then there's the final cause. Like there's a purpose to all this. And that final mm-hmm. cause is uh, in Christian language to give glory to God or to see God's glory. And, and those work perfectly well for me. Yeah, you know? absolutely. The, the presence of a universe like ours with these possibilities, even if you think of the specifics of humanity as contingent upon, you know, some things that could have gone one way or the other way in the evolutionary process, which that certainly seems to be the case, depending on how basically much of a thumb you think God's got on the scale of what evolves. And there are different views there. There's still, yeah, there's room in, in sort of any of those views for the whole thing is an exercise in, love connection, you know, that conscious experience itself is just, is just a capital G gift. And anyway, I was going to tie that in um, just to Islam a little bit, because I think, Oh, good. Cause I was going to say, we got to move on from Christianity. We're at, the half, <laughs> we're at least at the halfway point. Yeah. I think this is, this was the, I have a quote that I was looking for. Uh, Musafar Iqbal in the study Quran, he wrote an article on uh, Quran and science And he said, uh, built into the Quranic description of the cosmos is a teleology that anchors the physical cosmos in a metaphysical realm, therefore establishing an incontrovertible nexus between God and the cosmos and whatever exists in the cosmos and its raison d'etre on the other. In other words, God has to be part of all the equations we put in. Iqbal's, he wants to present a particularly Islamic view of, of science that includes God as part of what we talk about. And I think this is the part of the sensibility actually to not only to not separate God nor to exclude God, I guess is the way to put it. And I think a lot of us, uh, and I think what is being referenced here by him and other uh, Muslim scientists is we don't want to play the way that modern science, meaning modern Western European science has been set up that excludes God as a factor in the way we describe phenomena of which we call natural phenomena. We want to say God can be a part of it. I would say that's one thread among certainly the Western monotheistic religions that is really common among people who are trying to bring together science and religion is, are the, are the rules of engagement actually, the kind, are they allowing for us to describe the fullness of experience in the way we'd like to describe it? 
Guys, there is so much going on in Patreon land these days here at You Have Permission. This month, we've got at least three exclusive episodes coming your way. Extra content for an upcoming Shiny Happy People uh, response episode. We've got a new Generation Gap Culture Hour with Josh and Tony where we talk about aliens as well as whether or not to have kids and various concerns uh, that different people of different generations have had or are having around that question. It's really interesting to contrast Josh's experience of that and his friends with Tony. Uh, And the aliens talk is actually quite good, I think. And I unveil what I think is a pretty rock solid argument against spending too much time speculating about aliens while also being quite confident that they are out there. So if you want to hear uh, the three of us talk about that, make sure to listen to that episode. And if you're not a patron yet, you can become one patreon.com slash Dan Coke. That link is also in the notes. It's five bucks a month. And it also comes with access to the patron only Facebook group, as well as ad free and longer edits of these main feed episodes, which you can put all that patron content into your podcast player, the same place you're listening to these main feed episodes. You can add in the uh, RSS link, which is just like a, it's basically just a website link that you copy and paste in there. And in fact, maybe Patreon has made it even easier. You can just click a button and it will kind of do that work for you. And you subscribe to that patron feed and boom, Bob's your uncle. So if you're considering, if you're on the fence, it's a really good time to join. Thank you guys so much for your support. Back to my conversation with Greg. What I know of Islam and, you know, what we might call, I guess, the sciences, but also some of the humanities is like they kept Aristotle alive during the, you know, European Middle Ages. I think they invented algebra, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, sort of the word, right? I mean, that's it yeah. is all means though, right? Yeah. And and like really like a, a a strong orientation toward philosophy and logic and math. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think even astronomy. Like mm-hmm. again, I'm not. I'm, it's been a while since I've learned any of this stuff. But certainly there is a, a very science friendly, STEM friendly tradition within Islam, uh, which of course our primary understanding of Islam in the West for most of us is like whatever percentage of Muslims are fundamentalists and sort of allied with, you know, fundamentalist terrorism. Uh, but of course there are what a billion and a half Muslims or something in yeah, the world. Yeah. So, yep. Something yeah. like that. And and they can't, if they were all, <laughs> they're all terrorists, we'd be toast. So, you know, just game of numbers. So there's something else going on there. And, and it's a, it's a huge chunk of the world that I understand, you know, very poorly. Um, but I have, assumed that there was, you know, a different kind of a connection there. Yeah. Well, and it, absolutely. I mean, it's the same issue we're talking about with, you know, frequently misunderstood. I mean, that it's the Muslim, the Muslim approaches to science are, are varied and they're nuanced. And, uh, you know, Islam's going through a different part of its history from Christianity. You know, it's about 600 years uh, younger, right? Yeah. So um, just for whatever that's worth. I'm not saying that that's, there's some kind of lockstep thing that's happening, but we, there was that real golden age of Islamic science, you know, around the, let's say around the middle ages, 800, 900,000, essentially and, and on, we had this flourishing, like you said, of algebra and of astronomy and so on. And, uh, and, and so there's this really strong engagement with science uh, in that way. Um, and what's also really interesting is Islam has, I would say just as much, contemporary resistance to evolution in it uh, in, in a slightly different way from conservative Christianity as conservative Christians do, mm. which is, was really fascinating to hear about. And like Nidal Gessum, who I interviewed for the book was really concerned about this, about this resistance to evolution. He's done some surveys about it. I think the other thing about Islam that is really fascinating is there was this deep, um, I think, concern about what happened to Islam and science, right? Why did the Muslim world become less engaged in science and and in the degree that those two things, resistance to evolution, especially human evolution and resistance to science are part of uh, the Muslim world. How did that happen? Um, So 
I hope nobody who listens to you have permission will will hear me saying, oh, yeah, all of Islam is backward and hate science. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it was really interesting in in, uh, talking with, you know, leading Muslim scientists to say they're concerned about things that leading scientists who are Christians also concerned are also concerned about. Yeah. Yeah. That that was fascinating to me and something that was a bit of a surprise as I went deeper into the book. I don't know how far into that you got with him. So this is like asking you questions about someone that you interviewed. So, right, you know, right. th- uh, appropriate disclosure or disclaimer there, but it, does the word fundamentalism, you know, sort of serve as a, as a shorthand for what that's about? Like, is it akin to the scopes trial in the twenties in the States of like, well, the, the evolutionists tell us that the Genesis account is not literally accurate and we want literal Genesis more than we want science like is it something like that or or are the are the factors sort of different in the islamic world well they're they're similar in some ways you know it's interesting dan one of the things that i learned also and going deeper in pursuing this book you know which of course like a multi-year project to make this to have this come together um was there's this whole idea of scientific tafsir and tafsir is interpretation of the quran primarily quran uh, quran yeah and um, the idea that emerged um, as uh, science, modern science, was really coming to its own in the 19th and 20th centuries was, well, maybe the Quran is as scientific or even more scientific than science. So finding things in the Quran and huh. these verses that could be demonstrated by the methods, you know, at least putatively, by the methods of science that the Quran is true, the very word of God, God... It came first to Muhammad in Revelation before it came right. to any scientist. Right. Um, that happened as science was rising. You know, this is similar to what was going on with uh, some work in the in the Christian Church as as, as science was really gaining prominence in the nineteenth and twentieth century. As I understand it, the science of geology—I believe it's geology—just the study of you know the the different layers of Earth and what those tell us about what the composition of the rocks tells us about, you know, deep time basically began as a science by monks and other priests with time on their hands who were trying to understand the flood and essentially Mm. prove the historicity of the flood. That is how geology started. Yeah. And then of course, through that, they, they figured out, the fossil record and and that's a big that's a big chunk of the darwinian puzzle right so that had already kind of been going on and then darwin comes up with essentially the mechanism by which all the variation might happen among animals and so that's that's funny cuz that's actually uh, there's a real parallel track there for these faithful people trying trying to you know to use that two books thing read the book of nature alongside the book of scripture and anyway, fun, fun connection. It is fascinating and it, fascinating sometimes. And now we could be playing into like a Richard Dawkins hand if we want to, but to say, you know, Dawkins would say, well, yeah, you can even say that Christianity or, or monotheistic religion led to science as we know it, but now science has triumphed over what it found, right? In this case, it wanted to find, you know, some monotheistic people or wanted to find a support for Genesis or, or excuse me, for the flood narrative, well, I guess in Genesis. And therefore, um, you know, they, they, but by the time they got through with the science, it overtook them. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and basically the, the sort of conservative evangelicalism that I was raised with, at least in part, uh, maybe, maybe most of what I was raised with would, would essentially accept the terms of that battle. Right. And fundamentalists and new atheists like Dawkins, they agree on the terms of the debate. Yeah. They agree that it is either this, perfect supernatural revelation or it's all bullshit and we should just use science. And what I disagree with now is the terms. I don't think that those are the two options. I think that in fact, I might call that all or nothing or black and white thinking in a cognitive behavioral (laughs) approach. I might say that Dawkins is uh, engaging in some cognitive distortions. See, you can use, you can use scientific fire to fight scientific fire or philosophical fire. I have two points with Islam. Is that okay? If I put those in that are related to what we've been just been talking about. Please go for it. Yeah. So one would be um, occasionalism and the other would be the effect of missionary work. So the, the first, I'll go with the second first. So Missionary work, you know, one of the reasons that 
Islam started to, to come back with this scientific tafsir was there was all this incursion of colonialism in the 19th century. This is going to relate to Buddhism too. Yeah. And, you know, you see, especially uh, the British empire, but other empires moving out and saying, you know, uh, a we're superior, right? Because that's because we can colonize. That's because it's the right to do that. That's that's baked into the cake. Yeah, yeah, that's baked into the cake. <laughs> and of course, yeah. I don't know if I, yeah, I hope everybody realizes I'm speaking in the voice and the mindset. Yeah, it's awful. Times. It's the it's the it's the true like most awful chapter of human history. Sure, yeah. And and you know one of the proofs was we have the science, right? Mm-hmm. So our religion, yeah. our culture, based in our religion, to produce this amazing freaking science right uh, so yeah and of course that's tied in with warfare science and technology of warfare are always tied right. together so the western christian world began to have better technology for for warfare and uh, therefore uh was superior i mean literally superior and beat back uh, some muslim advances occurred you know in the uh, i think 1640s i believe is when that particularly happened our gunpowder is better and therefore the quran is not inspired by allah <laughs> exactly and that's why <laughs> what an insane this, argument yeah it yeah. is totally insane but it, yeah. but you but oh my god goodness you know you, th- you think about this from a psychological perspective all I'll pull on the, the chords that you know animate you. It's like, oh my goodness, don't we all don't we often tend toward this? Well, here's why oh, yeah. you know my dad can beat up your dad or whatever. You know, it's mm-hmm. like my culture is better than your culture, and so my group was, is the right group. You know, I mean, I've I landed in the right group, and that solves so much go. anxiety. And you could say, you could go with evolutionary psychology. It solves the anxiety that since I'm in the right group, I will survive. Yeah. Right. But it also serves other, you know, less survival based of just like meaning and I'm okay. Uh, I I don't I don't I have like some basically I have some some calm. I have a relaxation of selection pressures and I can just live my life because, oh, I'm in the right group. Thank God. Yeah. Well, and if we want to touch on this, I'll just say this also relates to the the idea that uh, Buddhism equals mindfulness. Yeah, this that was a particular strategy used by the Buddhist, by the Buddhist community in response to colonialism um, and mm. flip the switch, flip the script so that now Buddhists are seen as more scientific than Christians. But it happened in the same period, essentially. Say um, more about like, who were the colonialists? And are we talking Japan, China? What What's laid yeah, that out? Yeah, yeah. Um, so David McMahon, who wrote the uh, the making of Buddhist modernism and Evan Thompson, another writer have demonstrated that a lot of what we think of as Buddhist modernism or Buddhist minimalism, this idea that Buddhism is mindfulness only that like, that's it, right? Mindfulness meditation came about as there were missionaries coming into Buddhist countries like Japan, like China and others in, uh, in Asia and saying, Hey, we got, again, we've got all the goods. We're a better civilization. We got the science. We're more scientific. And it was like, okay, we can be more scientific than you. Again, super broad brush, but it's like, we can show you that we're about mind. That's what Buddhism is about, mind. Forget karma. Forget all the ceremonies that go with Buddhism. Um, But this has won the day by 2023. This is what people, when I say Buddhism, this is what they think about. My students will constantly say, well, Buddhism is about finding deep inner peace for the individual, you know, and mind and peaceful mind. I'm not saying Buddhism doesn't bring that about, don't get me wrong, but that is certainly not the full expanse of Buddhism, but it's a really fascinating, you know, it's, it's jujitsu. You might want to say like this idea that Christianity is more scientific. That's what makes it better was reversed. You have Christianity looking increasingly anti-scientific in the last 150 years and Buddhism becoming more minimalist. So it'll have a more pro-scientific approach. And, you know, the Dalai Lama is pretty overt about this, about not doing this as a technique, but saying there are things that I fully believe about brain science that uh, connects with Buddhism. And the stuff that's the, you know, that I can become Dalai Lama because of incarnation and all that stuff. Well, we're not going to talk. That's sort of inner Buddhist language. Um, We're not really going to put that in the forefront. Again, I hope that's no disrespect yeah. to Buddhism. I greatly respect Buddhism. I learned a ton from Buddhism. But I, when I see people interacting with Buddhism, I want them to interact with the full scope of what Buddhism is. And it certainly is not just mindfulness 
meditation. But it's fascinating historically to see that that came about through a response to colonialism. And one of the discoveries of the book is how science has been used as part of a colonializing activity. And certainly in Muslim countries and Buddhist countries and others, but we'll put those two out there, we predominantly Buddhist and predominantly Muslim countries, we see a response of, we're going to create our own pro-scientific approach to our religious tradition. So obviously we're doing very superficial dives into each of these communities here because, you know, there's a whole book that you wrote about this. But, you know, the, the colonial angle makes me want to ask about Native American spirituality. And, and you have this finding that, like, a lot of Native American tribes, did indigenous tribes, I guess First Nations in Canada, don't have a, a word for religion. And in, like, for instance, in the Southwest United States area, the closest word is the word doing. Yeah. Yeah. And like that, I mean, as you might've guessed that, that gets down to some real good stuff for me and, and goes deep of like, you know, what, what even is religion? You know, like we have this very sort of atomized, well, it's, it's religion versus science. You know, that's like our view post enlightenment, but they don't have that split. And that's just like, I want to just dive there for a while. Oh, I love that. That's Severin Fowles from uh, Columbia University who po- pointed that out about the Southwest uh, Pueblo, you know, tribes. And yeah, my daughter, Melanie, that's what she's doing her PhD in is that study. Uh, oh, cool. Anthropology. Yeah. So it's certainly a part of our life. I mean, you said it so well. I'm just going to just build on that. Like it just sets religion in such a different perspective. And I think this is what people are trying to do when they would say I'm spiritual, but not religious, or I have a spirituality or Native American life is, is spirituality, not religion, that they're saying, I want this more integrated into all that I am. My colleague, Sarah Pike, my colleague at Chico State, is willing to put together Native American traditions with broader neo-pagan traditions and and put them under nature religions, which is how I organized that chapter. Um, yeah. And if Sarah Pike does it, who's an international scholar, I'm like, okay, I'm I'm good with this one. But I think what they're they're also looking at is, you know, how do we in the, the whole world is so much more interconnected than than often we see it. You know, like Rene Descartes' famous phrase where he said that we are masters and possessors of nature. That, that to me has become increasingly, I guess I would say horrifying, like that we, you know, we can just use nature however we want, you know, yeah. and that's in some ways, you know, there's a reason you get there, but it's a little bit of the worst of Western science and you know, that we met, we master and possess nature. And whereas uh, this broader sense of, of Native American traditions or indigenous traditions is we are part of nature. You know, we're only going to flourish if the natural world flourishes. And therefore, science isn't, in Descartes' view, which he's representing, you know, the rise of European science, we take it, we can vivisect, you know, we can take apart an animal and find out how it ticks and right. kill the the poor thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. In, in other words, nature is something we can kill in order to understand. It's like the, the uh, na- nature religion view is we're part of this thing. If we kill it, we're killing ourselves. And... I would just put in a little plug here, which I find super interesting, is when you look at this as a Christian, this worldview, this native worldview, if you want to make it a broad sense of we're interconnected, what fits better with Jesus's message? You know, this the, the worldview that I've worked with ever since I became a Christian, which is the Western Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment worldview, separation, overcoming, domination, or integration, engagement, and interconnection. It's like, boy, that second worldview actually makes a lot more sense with Christianity. And, and of course, there are a lot of Native Americans that are Christians and who do this work already. But, but the point being, this is where, when you asked me at the very beginning, what do I learn from this? I'm like, oh, my goodness. I actually learned how to be, I might be a better Christian, a more committed follower of Jesus by looking at this kind of approach to the natural world and saying, we are interconnected. And whatever I do in response to the God I know revealed in Jesus Christ is not going to be something separate. That's religion. It's going to be this way of life that's integrated into all that I am. So those would be a few thoughts uh, about yeah. how this all relates to this, this very interesting word study of what, what is the word religion actually mean? The difference between a sort of let's 
extract everything we can with no, you know, concern to sustainability approach to sort of science and nature or whatever, man and nature. Some of that's an issue of scale, right? Like at the smaller level, you know, we can come up with medicines and we can really take nature apart, look for the thing that is doing the healing from this particular plant. And can we make that more concentrated and can it heal even better? And and from this, we get broadly speaking, pharmaceuticals, right? Mm -hmm. Which can of course then be used in some of the earlier conversation where we are sort of trying to break apart that conflict and, and bring these two ways of looking at it together of like, it is both God and the doctor healing me with this medicine because the, the scientists figured out the medicine. They, they did this good work and, and the doctor is using the best tools at her disposal to care for her patients, which is a loving thing to do. And then I get to heal. So like, I, I, I find that there can be a kind of a, a dumbed down. Well, the indigenous people know that we should just leave everything alone and the greedy capitalists, you know, just don't give a shit about anything. It's like, well, no, because, because doctors and, and scientists, and this includes therapists to some degree, it's, um, but certainly psychiatrists, right. Who are utilizing drugs and, and stuff like that. Right. Like we've got it. We just have different toolkits that we're using to try and help people. So that part is, not so worrisome, but if you zoom all the way out and you ask what is sustainable here, should we like clear cut a forest of this plant to get medicine such that it can't grow back? Well, now that's a, you know, now we're in a real pickle and we won't be able to do these life-giving things because we are, it's not sustainable, right? Does that like, is that pinging anything for you? Oh yeah. I mean, I do think the big takeaway I had from that that chapter on nature religions was, you know, this interconnection that I think we're longing for today is something that has been squeezed out by the science and the way in the technology as we've been taught. I'd love to see a more pluralistic approach to science and even a, a little bit of a redefinition of science and religion so that we could do something that's that's going to work better. What I hope is stating the obvious, we're on the edge of being in a really big problem with global climate change and what science and technology has caused. So- right. We need some better solutions than the, the things that caused the problem. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll just put in here, uh, because it relates to one other chapter, that um, Hinduism, in a lot of ways, has a connection with uh, Native American and other nature religion practices. This is not this is not something I said. This is some, one of the scholars I talk with to say, we might be able to see also that interconnection in Hinduism as well, you know, and that a deep sense of of connection with nature. So uh, here again, which uh, that we don't see in, in some of the Western traditions. Mm. So here again, we see like these commonalities that exist through multiple religions, how they view yeah. science and nature, but also differences. But here's a commonality. I think the na- native traditions of our country, native nature religions, and many forms of Hinduism have some common threads. Let's, let's recognize their interconnection uh, with the world around us. You brought up the spiritual, but not religious. A lot of listeners of this show would would classify themselves that way. These are people who do not have a formal religious membership or identification, but who nonetheless consider themselves spiritual, engage in some activities, perhaps through which they find spiritual meaning. And you talked about the overlap between that and, you know, native indigenous religions or spiritualities and you know, neo-paganism and original paganism, animism, stuff like that. One difference there is that those traditional spiritualities are so imbued with ritual. I think that the the anecdote about Southwest tribes, their word for religion being the word for doing is like that gets at exactly what I mean. That And, and there's language about this with. Australian Aboriginal tribes, tribes like the the dream time and that essentially the entirety of their, if I'm re- remembering correctly from some world religions books I read years ago, you know, their whole life is seen by them to be imbued uh, and sort of parallel with this spiritual plane and the spiritual but not religious of our current day 
one thing you might say that most demarcates them from others is a kind of a lack of agreed upon regular rituals or practice that that's in fact, the thing that they're rejecting. I don't go to church anymore. I don't necessarily pray in the same way. I'm not taking the Eucharist. Uh, I'm not clicking a membership thing in a church and they go, they might go hiking. They might have a dinner that they have with close friends. They, they may have other regular practices, but that's precisely the difference. And so I wonder what you think about that's a very interesting both overlap and strong difference between the those groups. Yeah, I think you said it well. And uh, the part I would pick up on is, you know, what are the common cultural categories or communal categories and practices that we do together? You know, I'm thinking of Laird Eastman's uh, work on that. Yeah, Laird's episode is probably going to come out I don't, it's going to be around the time that yours comes out. I've already recorded yeah. with him and it's that episode is all about ritual. I mean, I think Laird, it'll be great if these get connected closely in yeah. time, because I think his whole point about we need rituals together and, and rituals as he'll talk about it, at least I've heard him talk about are, are very common things. Like yeah. I went to a wedding reception a couple of days ago and my wife and I had the greatest time dancing. And part of the great time dancing was, we were dancing with all kinds of other people. Our bodies were in motion together. Mm-hmm. It was so yes. fun and so unifying. That's a ritual in this language, right? Mm-hmm. So also to say the spiritual but not religious often really take to nature religions, right? And so that's a kind of spirituality that they that they often draw from. I mean, it's totally, you know, various forms and inputs they'll take in. But that difference, you know, that the SBNR world has had difficulty finding is where do you find commonality, you know? And that, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking from the times I've been in conferences at the American Academy of Religion and other places where people in this world say, our problem is we don't come together ever. You know, it's the famous like herding cats, like our whole identity is to be non-religious. That's part of perhaps the title we would even uh, take on. Therefore, religion is so much about religare, right? Ligatures, connecting, and we don't have those connections. So what are those connections going to be? And the thing that I think they'll need to learn from is how do we take in what Native American tribes did really well, which is have common rituals, common practices, common doings, to use that language. What is going to bind us together? And to me, that would be one of the emerging questions that I hear from inside of the spiritual, but not religious is how are we going to find this binding that religion has done? You know, your, your friend, uh, I think our mutual friend, really Sarah Lane Ritchie's really doing some great work and putting this together. And I would say partly this category spiritual, but not religious is a little too broad. I think the scholars that I talk with, it's just not quite precise enough yet to really know how to differentiate some of the, the subgroups of that. And Sarah's doing good work by delineating, like being clear with her terms and like what she's looking at in that big Templeton project is the yearning of the non spiritual yearning of the non-religious. So right. let's look specifically at that yearning. What is it like? How do we understand it? Uh, but these are people for whom there is not a specific religious tradition that they that they identify with. That's that's progress. Yeah. And I think what, what what science would tell us, this is science and religion in a different way, is to create human happiness, we need community. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, we think in community. And Dan, I don't need to prove this to you at all, because we we have the same approach, I think, on this to a large degree. Like the idea of thinking apart from community is so scary because survival, <laughs> survival is more important than being right. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's certainly in an early stage of, of community. And so it's really hard actually to think even without a community. And what I find, this is not really talking about, this is now applying science to the spiritual, but not religious category is what needs to be done is to have these, uh, individual, the people are in, largely individuals in these groups find a place of connection. And a scholar like Lisa Miller at Columbia is really, really convinced of, we are at a crisis with things like suicide and depression and anxiety. Those are emerging because we've lost the community that religion has tended to give us. She does yeah. not equate religion with spirituality by any means, if people don't know Lisa Miller. But she does say that religions have provided us with context for spirituality. And we probably need that. 
Let me just add one little footnote just for fun. Please. Interestingly enough, in India, which is, of course, the primary place where most Hindus live, there is actually the reverse phenomenon, which is people are religious but not spiritual. They will go to religious events more than they'll say they are spiritual. Like they'll do more religious events than say I'm spiritual in some way or another. I just find that a really fascinating twist on what we experience in the United States. I know I have some listeners who identify as religious, but not spiritual. And that, that is also interesting. And in some sense there, yeah, they're, they're maybe getting a lot of that practical stuff. Uh, It's, it's, it's fascinating. The, the language and categories and, and the study of all that stuff is, is constantly evolving. It's one of the things I, and most interested in kind of keeping tabs on because yeah, it gets to, I mean, really just that's kind of a nice way of wrapping it up, right? Like we, if we are committed, you know, you and I, Greg, and and many listeners as Christians in taking the contemporary world as we find it on its own terms, not trying to look at it through rose colored glasses or, or look at it through perspectives that constantly remind us that we're right and other people are wrong and, you know, get at these kind of base psychological needs, if we can put in the work, um, build the infrastructure in ourselves of, of character, flexibility, you know, and really self-esteem and and just kind of being okay such that we can venture out and, and take the world on its own terms, that's really, I, I think that's the call. That's certainly the call I feel uh, on my own self, and I think most listeners probably share that to some degree or else they wouldn't find this show helpful. And so thank you for uh, giving us another chapter of that and thinking through science and these various uh, faith traditions. Thanks thanks for the opportunity to to talk about that. And I will just uh, kind of also end up where we started, you know, religious pluralism is not going to go away no matter how much we want to think that there's some, uh, you know, way that one religion, particularly as Christians, the Christian religion will triumph over all others. I just don't see a scenario in which that happens. Or secularism will triumph over everything else. That also does not appear to be happening the way it was predicted. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would just end where I ended the book um, by, by looking to those great leaders of various religious traditions who have found, I'm going to go back to beauty, but beauty and awe and wonder you know, I think the Dalai Lama's uh, one of those people. I, I think Einstein, actually, as a scientist, was one of those people who found beauty um, in his equations. Pope Francis, you know, um, probably one of my great, one of my heroes in life in this regard, Francis Collins, you know, this from Biologos, NIH, you know, this, and, and so many, many more. I'm just mentioning a couple that come to mind immediately, like finding beauty, finding those common themes not making them the same voices, but saying in the voices we have and the reality we actually have, we can find some common themes of, around things like beauty and transcendence and, yeah. and and grace and love and meaning. That, I think, is what I hope this book helps people to do at some level, to say you take these various traditions of religion, these various approaches to science, and when you find a thread of, of beauty, you found something worth worth talking about and worth pursuing. Fantastic. Greg, I love the stuff that you're interested in and I look forward to having you back when you're next. Uh, inevitably relevant project to myself and our listeners <laughs> emerges. Thanks, Dan. Always so much fun to talk with you. <laughs>